I've learned over the years to, uh, to tread very carefully in this time of year because there are very strong opinions on whether or not and at what time we should put up Christmas lights or decorations or start listening to Christmas music. It's, there, there are only two for sure rules that I think we still actually have some kind of a social consensus around is that it would be sacrilegious to do so before Halloween, but it is definitely and at least a green light after Thanksgiving. That time between is kind of no man's land, you know what I mean? And I say this because, and that actually doesn't even get into like, okay, are we talking about Christmas, Brad, or are we talking about Advent? Because they're not the same thing, and I have opinions about that as well. That said, I'm bringing this up all to explain that today we are going to both wrap up our sermon series in David and start getting into Advent a little bit early. And it's in 2 Samuel, so I feel very free to lean into no man's land on this one. So, you'll notice that this doesn't come at the end of David's life. This comes smack in the middle of David's life. And it's because it actually kind of ties together so many of the different themes that we've been talking about this fall, but it also beautifully kind of sets the tone and the lens for everything that follows and especially sets up and is kind of, let me put it this way, it's, it's, it's a perfect epilogue for our sermon series on the, on the life of David, but it is a perfect prologue for Advent, which we are going to be starting this coming Sunday a week from today. Now, I say that this, this isn't just trying to like see this in the text, it's actually there. You probably heard and can tell, especially which points you might be familiar with when Michael was reading, but I would even, I would go so far as to say that we can't actually understand what Advent even is without understanding David's life in general, but this passage in particular. More ink has been spilled explaining chapter 7 of 2 Samuel than than most any other passage in the Old Testament. And it is because it is, it, it, we refer to it as the Davidic covenant. It is this huge turning point in Israel's relationship with God and is itself a promise telling Israel and the world what, or more specifically who, to wait for in the first advent of Christ, the birth of Jesus, Right? But it also, it's not, it actually has some amazing, beautiful promises for us as well, even as we wait for Jesus' second advent, for his return at the end of time in history to, re- to bring and make new, the new heavens and new earth. But it also tells us how. It tells us how to wait for advent. It tells us how to wait for Jesus' return in ways that are very similar but incredibly and beautifully different than it was for Israel. So we're going to walk through this. And the, the bulk of, of what this beautiful passage is all about is not, it, it's not just the promise of Advent. It's about the person making the promise. It's about the promise giver. And what's amazing is, is this is where God is telling David, right? God is telling David that his presence is going to move from a temporary, temporal tent 
to the temple, that's what, it means when, that's what David means when he says, build Yahweh a house, but he says to David, hold the phone, you're not going to do it. He says Solomon, his son, his heir, is going to build the temple. But in so doing, and the reasons he gives are incredible because it tells us something about the promise giver. Verses 6 through 7 is explain Yahweh's humility, right? God is telling David, I wasn't just, I wasn't exactly lacking, like I wasn't uncomfortable in the tent. Like it wasn't bad, I was happy to be in the tent. I wasn't lacking in the wilderness. And by the way, the creator of everything doesn't need anything from his people, right? If he made the heavens and the earth, then he could make a temple if he wanted to. But the point that God's trying to make by telling this to David through Nathan is not to instruct David about God's needs or what they may or may not be, but to instruct David about God's character. I love the way... um, a commentator by the name of Dale Ralph Davis, he said this about Yahweh's humility. He says, how can God settle down when Israel is still unsettled? Do you see what Yahweh is saying about himself? He is the God who travels with his people in all their topsy-turvy here and there journeys and wanderings. Do his people live in tents? So does he. Are they a pilgrim people in their way to the land of promise? So he is the pilgrim God, sharing the rigors of the journey with them. Now, when God rescues Israel from from Egypt in the book of Exodus, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. To be Israel's God, what he's saying here is not just to be with them positionally in terms of locating his presence with them but to be with them personally, enduring what they endure, going through what they go through. And so he will not rest until he has secured rest for his people. He remains unsettled as long as his people remained unsettled because he so closely identifies himself with his people. Israel's good is God's glory. There is no daylight between the two. That's amazing. Yahweh's grace, it gets better. In verses 8 through 11, he tells David, no, (laughs) you don't get to build me a house. Also, I'm going to build you a house. And this is incredible. I actually, I shared this part of the sermon with our staff at our staff meeting this meeting this week as what an incredible gift it is that we often think that we are called to do great things for God, and sometimes that is true, and yet this is a God who does not need us to do things for him, but he accomplishes his grace and his love in and through his people, and those are not the same things. He is saying to to David, in essence, I chose you, a shepherd, to be king of Israel. (laughs) You're a shepherd. There's rags to riches, and then there's shepherd to king, okay? It is by sheer grace that you already have a house of cedar, so let me make that grace even more clear by also giving you, by grace, not just a house, but a household. This promise here is especially a dynasty for David. That unlike Saul, who had to be replaced not by his son, but by an adopted heir in David, unlike him, 
David would have his house on the throne forever. Because even after he's dead and gone, God is going to do this. What he's trying to tell David is this, is that by definition, to be Yahweh's people, to be his people, means it is to receive from God, not to achieve for him. It is to receive from God, not to achieve for him. And by thinking he could do God a favor, David was actually on the cusp of forgetting this. He was on the cusp of becoming full of himself instead of full of God, now that he is secure and stable and wealthy. And probably a lot less stressed than he was when when he was wandering around in the wilderness. Even more than that, God tells David that this promise cannot be changed. It is immutable. That says something about the giver's faithfulness, Yahweh's faithfulness. In verses 12 through 16, he's, he's saying, I will build your home and it will last forever. Not just the promise, but the thing that the promise achieves will last forever. God will make good on that promise and nothing can stop it. Not death, he says in verses 12 through 13, nor sin, as he says in verses 14 through 15, not even time itself, as he says in verse 16. The only difference between God speaking, let there be light at creation, and him promising, I will build your house to David, is whether it is in present or future tense. In other words, God is as faithful to deliver on his promise as the sun is to rise every morning because God declares both of them to be so. And we know that that happened. We know that that promise was given. And I, I, one of my favorite underappreciated verses in the New Testament is Colossians 1.19 where Paul saying about Jesus, he says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That verse kind of hits a little different when understanding the context of 2 Samuel, doesn't it? Right? Because the promise has been given in Jesus and, and the language that Paul uses here is that he, God doesn't go from dwelling in a tent and to a temple and then stay there, but The advent, the promise is that God would not just dwell in a temple, that he would dwell in the flesh. And so therefore, Yahweh's humility is fulfilled and satisfied in Jesus' incarnation. It is not just a positional dwelling and move from heaven to earth in that humility, but a personal one. When Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 8, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, this is what he's talking about. He says, I will dwell with you and where you are and endure what you endure in every way. He didn't just walk a mile in our shoes, he walked a lifetime barefoot. (laughs) Yahweh's grace is then satisfied in Jesus' atonement. You see, what's amazing about 2 Samuel 7 is that before David, Israel's leaders were blessed 
not on the basis, they were blessed or not on the basis of Israel's faithfulness. So it was, so goes the people, so goes the leader. You know, whether that's Moses as a prophet or Saul as the king, so goes the people, so goes the leader. But after David, Israel is best blessed on the basis of the king's faithfulness. So, so goes the king, so God treats and sees his people. That actually was, that's new as of this moment in David's life. That has incredible implications because when we understand that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, he is the Davidic heir and king that is being promised in 2 Samuel 7, that means that Jesus died for our unrighteousness and then blesses us on the basis of his righteousness. This is, it is the satisfying, it is not the annulling of God's covenant promises before or after David is the satisfaction of all of them, is the fulfillment of all of them without a single one having to be altered or changed. God is consistent from creation to new creation. And Yahweh's faithfulness also bears fruit in this promise at Jesus' resurrection. Now, this one of the three is a little bit different because we, we will still die at some point. Jesus resurrected. And so what we understand this to imply is that this is the down payment and preview that, that we can know that if we are in Christ as Christians, that we can look forward to the full restoration and the eternal rest in the new heavens and new earth. Friends, the, the birth of Christ is the answer to all the riddles. It is the solution to every problem. Jesus is not just the promised Davidic seed, nor is he just the Abrahamic offspring promised in Genesis 12. He is also he who God promised Eve would crush the head of the serpent forever, reconcile God and man, and redeem all of creation and indeed the cosmos itself. Amen. That's a big deal. It's such a big deal, in fact, that if we kept reading in, in chapter 7, if you have your Bibles, you can see that David, like the only, the only word I can figure out to describe and summarize his, his reaction is gobsmacked. Okay, like he is astounded. He can't even, all right? This is the original can't even. And David, he can see enough of a silhouette of this promise being given and the promise being satisfied and fulfilled, but he lacks our hindsight, right? He doesn't know the, what we know, and yet still he sees enough to be totally gobsmacked by the promise giver, and in verse 18 and following, he, basically, he starts with saying like, who am I that you would do this? This is insane, God. It's in the Hebrew, trust me. We live in the light of the promise given, in the light of in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And I think if we're honest, we kind of shrug, don't we? Like, I'm not hearing a whole lot of gobsmacked. I heard one amen. It's still a far cry from gobsmacked, okay? Especially since my nerve verbals were begging for it, Okay. 
we are too familiar with the Christmas story. And yes, we reduce the Christmas gift to sentimental baby Jesus, right? But that is not sufficient to explain the depth of our apathy. And so why aren't we then? Why aren't we awestruck and gobsmacked and unable to find sufficient words to express the joy and gratitude and relief as David struggled as well? Why not? I think this is a really important question. In fact, I did not know we would be singing this song this morning. But the song Ben let, let us in, that second verse, it says, Fences guard our hearts and homes. Comfort sings a siren tune where a valley of dry bones lead us back to life in you. That encapsulates the entire next point I have planned so, so much more succinctly for sure, but powerfully. I think the answer to this question of why, don't, why are we not gobsmacked is that we, we live in a disenchanted world. We live in a disenchanted and disenchanting world, right? We are all people, like this is not unique to us, like we are all subtly shaped and conditioned by our time and place, right? So no matter when or where you live, everyday life, whatever that is, is in, some, in many ways a liturgy that makes some things more or less believable than others, more or less plausible than others, more or less astounding than others. If you don't believe me, just think about how we view pre-modern people. For example, Israel in and, and David's time, or the ancient Near East in general, right? We view pre-modern people as superstitious in that they worship what they can't explain, right? But that is because we are shaped and conditioned by a liturgy of everyday life that Charles Taylor, the philosopher, calls a, a secular age that we worship, we worship that we can explain everything. Pre-modern people we see as superstitious because they worship what they can't explain, but that is only because we are conditioned to, to, to worship that we can explain it all and often explain it all away. Those are very different starting points. Those are very different everyday liturgies. And to go through life unaware of that difference will disenchant both the promise giver and the promise given. Let me, let me give just a, few, just a couple examples of this. Like modern technology, and I know I, I love to beat up on social media a lot, okay? I do not just mean social media. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. It's definitely included, but it is not just that. Modern technology in general offers a positional omniscience without personal presence. Let me say that again. Modern technology offers a positional omniscience. In other words, we can kind of be anywhere through technology, and yet we are not personally anywhere. That shapes us. We don't have to agree with that statement for it to start to change the way that we view the world and relationships in, in ways that lead us to think that it is normal to be that invulnerable to risk so little. And our hearts become dulled to Yahweh's humility because we are used to being with people, a world or a click away. 
but we're not. Certainly not in the way that Yahweh was telling David he was with his people in the wilderness. How about another one? Let's talk about modern affluence. Man, you want to talk about fences that guard our hearts and our homes? For many of us, for most of us even, modern affluence, even though, yes, it is a stupid expensive place to live here, it feels like you're barely keeping your head above water, and yet you can, right? Right? Modern affluence reduces our failure to achieve blessing to a psychological and emotional consequence without, for most of us, life or death or economic impact. Frankly, that means that we feel very little urgency to receive Yahweh's grace because there's just less on the line in our failures. And we still believe that we can achieve blessing, blessing that we can flourish on our own because even if we lose one job, there's always another. One more, modern instability, okay? If there is anything that every person in this room can agree on, it's that it feels like even whether it is or even not, and I would say that it, in many ways it is, modern instability conditions us to this feeling like we are experiencing more change than we have ever experienced before at a faster rate than we have ever experienced before. And everything feels in flux, from, from supply chains to individual identities Social consensus. I talked about a social consensus. I'm like, I'm just waiting for Christmas lights to become a culture war. Social consensus is an oxymoron, it feels like. We don't trust Yahweh's faithfulness because we are so unpracticed at trusting anything. Because we don't feel like we can. Because, well, how can you trust it if everything is going to change? And if everything is going to change, then why would Yahweh's faithfulness not? But here's some good news, right? The good news is that if neither death nor sin nor time can keep God from making good on his promise, then do you think our disenchantment is a problem for God? No. Because even from, from if, if the gospel is one of grace from beginning to end, then it is the object of our faith that saves us, not the strength of our belief. It is who we trust in who does the saving, not how confident we are that he will. He's going to do it. He's doing it now, and he has done it already. Reenchantment. Is child's play. And he's given us an incredible gift in this. This is my last point, re-enchanted by the promise. And so if you have a question, you can send it in. But do not miss this, please. Okay? David says to Yahweh in 2 Samuel 7, I will build a temple house, house. I will build a temple house for Yahweh. And that is, in essence, a temporal promise. It is, a, it is man promising God something, Right? Yahweh turns it upside down, and he says, I will build a dynasty house for you and for your offspring. And yes, the Owen offspring is capitalized for a reason. That is an eternal promise. To that, Jesus says, hold my beer. Jesus says, I will build my church house. 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He combines the temporal and the eternal into the already and not yet. If you are looking for a taste of heaven, welcome. If you need a preview of Jesus' second coming, of his second advent, of what it is like, we are rehearsing the end of that story every single Sunday. Yes, extremely imperfectly. And yes, we are still sinners and broken. And yes, we still need to forgive and to repent. And yes, it is really painful and hard sometimes. But Jesus has said, I will build my church. You need to know, and you need to hear me, so often when we read that verse in particular, we think that this is just about Jesus' promise to grow and sustain the church, and it is that at least. But because we live in such a disenchanted, individualistic world, we miss how much the entire New Testament, from Matthew to Revelation, is the story of God's dwelling place advancing from the temple to the person of Christ, then the church of Christ, until Christ returns. That is the story of the New Testament. And the New Testament is describing the fulfillment of the promise in 2 Samuel 7. Let me put it out, like, maybe this is a way to think about it, especially as we, as we go into Advent next week. The church is God's Advent incubator. Right? It is how God re-enchants his people with and through his promise. In many ways, Israel's advent was waiting for that promise to be fulfilled, but that promise has been fulfilled for us, even if it has not been consummated and completed. And so our advent is waiting for the promise to be consummated. And God knows that we are going to live in a world that does not that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not just not the way it's supposed to be, but tells us that it is the way it's supposed to be. That makes us think that this hope is not something that we should be hoping in. And it... The story is an embodied narrative, or the church is an embodied narrative telling the true history of what God is doing in the world. If disenchanted waiting... Sounds miserable, it's because it is. It's soul-crushing even. It is as we wait, because that's what Advent is all about. We are, we are, we are practicing and entering into a, a, a season of hungering and of longing for good things that, yes, should be part of our world here and now, but are not. And therefore, we know that what we hope for are in things not yet seen that God is bringing to completion what he began and he first promised Eve in the fall. Our waiting can be re-enchanting in and through the church. I'm going to work backwards and show you this because Jesus' resurrection, I said earlier, that his resurrection is kind of the exception of the three because it's an already but not yet tension, right? Jesus' resurrection we put our hope in in a future sense into the advent of Christ's return because we know that when he comes back, we can rest. 
And until that time, God gives a temporal rest to tide us over until that eternal rest, with the church being where and how we wait well. But that waiting, that, that w- let me hear me, this, the table, as, as any other church in, in history and currently meeting on this Sunday for worship as well, this is more than a waiting room, Okay? It's not just a waiting room because in Jesus' atonement, that, an, that has an analogy. Paul tells us that the church is the bride of Christ because if Jesus' atonement reconciled God and man vertically, right, then the bride of Christ is actually where our reconciliation with God is vertically experienced, i.e., that's why communion is a foretaste of the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's a wedding reception, It's a celebration of what is already true. That's what we are participating in, of Jesus accomplishing his marriage to his bride. But it's not just vertically experienced. It's also horizontally applied in and as we repent and forgive one another as God's family. We are practicing what will no longer be necessary in the new heavens and new earth when sin and death are no more. We are are undoing the work of sin and death when we repent and when we forgive one another. And then lastly, Jesus' incarnation. Colossians is an incredible book. I preached through it several years ago now. We're going to do it again here soon because it's beautiful. When Paul describes the church as the body of Christ, what he means to say is that the church, and I know you're thinking like, like this one, us, really? Yeah, I know. That's why it's crazy, okay? The church is Jesus' earthly manifestation until he returns. The body of Christ. If the incarnate Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David, then the body of Christ is nothing less than the new temple. It is nothing less than the temple of God's presence in the world, positionally and personally. He's here. Like right now. Jesus is with you. Whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that you carried in here this morning, whatever it is that you pray for a burden lifted, Jesus is enduring it with you even now. You know that because it takes a miracle for all of us to get together in the same room to agree on anything. But Jesus' love for us is so big and so faithful we do it every week. This is that promise, and the experience of that promise is the church. And it, God promises to use the church to re-enchant us with hope. So as we enter into Advent, let that be your hope, that even as we lean into the discomfort of waiting for good things that should be a part of this world but are not, that that is how we can wait and why we wait because it's worth it. Let me see what questions we have this morning. How do we focus on celebrating all that God has given us instead of focusing on failing, or falling into feeling unworthy of his gift and becoming depressed or shut down? How do we focus on celebrating all that God has given us instead of focusing on and falling into feeling unworthy of his gift and becoming depressed or shut down? 
there's so many ways to answer this question. And not knowing more of whoever is the answer, not knowing more of your story makes that really hard. But let me just tell you about, let me tell you how I get depressed and shut down and how I answer this question, okay? I don't feel worthy. And normally if I'm like, no, this makes sense at any point in my life, I have lost the plot, okay? David's first response to this promise is, who am I? He's the king of Israel, the most celebrated king in all of Israel's history before or after. And he is hyper aware that he's the best that humanity has had to offer. And it's still nowhere close to being sufficient. It is only two chapters later that David steals a man's wife and forces her to sleep with him and then has that man, his advisor, murdered by wielding his power as a king to have the men on his left and right in battle pull away and leave him exposed and vulnerable. Like, that guy was not worthy. Neither are we. I have a... I get depressed and, and can be shut down and get stuck on feeling unworthy because I'm believing all of these lies around me that says I have to achieve that worth. That, that, that my worth is something that I have to do. I have to accomplish. I have to prove to myself or somebody else whether they asked for it or not. And that I'm not worthy because Jesus has declared me so. That is only and ever grace. So how do we focus on celebrating all that God has given us? You, take, you, can't, you can't change that narrative on your, home, on your own. Every week when we have communion, we say the same thing. That on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he was with his apostles and he broke it. He says, this is my body, is broken for you. Right? We are being restoried. We are being re-enchanted in and through the sacraments, and we are being given a new identity in Christ that says that it is, it is given by grace and not achieved through merit, okay? You need to hear people tell you, you're not worthy, actually. You don't have to be afraid of that because Jesus isn't, and if Jesus isn't, then we aren't either. Let me show you, not just tell you how much you are loved by him. I would encourage you, the short answer to this question is I would encourage you to ask somebody, how do I change this? Can you help me change this? Can you help me to celebrate? Guarantee you, anyone sitting in this room, they will meet you there. Okay, one more question. What about the Holy Spirit dwelling in us? Isn't this also a fulfillment of God's promises along with the church? Yes. In fact, those are not two different things. Okay. The indwelling Holy Spirit is at once both individual and communal at the same time. So, okay, I love this. At Pentecost in Acts 2, when uh, it says the Holy Spirit made everybody speak in tongues and everybody understood each other even though they were speaking different languages and these little like flame, blue flames kind of alighted upon all of the people there. What that was was the undoing of the Tower of Babel. 
It was an undoing of God, confusing and scattering a people who tried to make a name for themselves. And you heard in 2 Samuel 7 that God promises David, I will make you not just a great name as he promised Abraham, but the greatest of all names. That name is Jesus. And when you are in Christ, you are in the church, and there is no distinction between the Holy Spirit's presence among us or in between us and individually and corporately. But there is no, let me put it this way, if there is any distinction, and there isn't, okay, if there's any distinction at all, it is that the individual is a result of the communal, not the other way around. Does that make sense? Okay. These are very good questions. Um, Let me pray as we go into communion. Jesus, We're not worthy. And Lord, actually, Jesus, thank you for prompting that person to ask the question of how do we move from (laughs) hyper self-aware discouragement and depression around not being worthy into celebration of how little that has phased you from making us worthy in you. Lord, this this is something that I think I think it's always kind of haunting the edges of our hearts. And Lord, I think, I think it's often made worse because we try to push it away and act like it's not a thing because in, we, we, we fear that, that those feelings are actually more defining of us than Jesus. And that's not true. It's a lie straight from the pit of hell. So Lord, I pray that you help to give all of us both the freedom to say that maybe we're struggling with this and to have your people follow you in what you say in Zephaniah 3.17, that you rejoice over us, your people, with loud singing. Lord, help us to rejoice over one another on the virtue of what you have done on your people's behalf, not on what any of us individually or together do on, for you. Because one leads to death and the other leads to life. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for re-enchanting your people and the promise of Advent, then and the one to come. We pray all this, Lord, in your name. Amen.